Hello, this is Leslie Garfa Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Abigail Perdue about her new book, The All-Inclusive Guide to Judicial Clerking. Abigail Perdue is a professor of legal analysis, writing, and research, the founding director of the D.C. Summer Judicial Externship Program, and the assistant director of the D.C. Metropolitan Spring Externship Program at Wake Forest University School of Law. She's the author of the book, The All-Inclusive Guide to Judicial Clerking, published by West Academic Press and available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and school bookstores. Professor Perdue's book is considered the one-stop shop for current and prospective judicial clerks, and in this episode, she shares key insights, including some ideal tips for securing a clerkship after graduation. Congratulations on your book, The All-Inclusive Guide to Judicial Clerking, which is available on Amazon and in bookstores at schools and um, anywhere else it's available. Barnes and Noble, West Academic. Terrific. Yes, and it is published by West Publishing. Um, So... Let's talk first about the importance of judicial clerking. When I was in law school, I really was not aware of how important that was, and it's something I really regret. Why is judicial clerking important? Judicial clerking is important because it can be one of the most formative stages of an attorney's career. Uh, In my experience, it really altered the trajectory of my career for lots of reasons. One is that you are really providing an important public service. Uh, The judiciary is a branch of our government, and the judges have very heavy dockets. They rely heavily upon their law clerks to assist them in delivering justice efficiently um, and producing just outcomes. So you're, you're able to be a part of something that's so incredibly important in our judicial system. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, the relationships that you form with your judge, with your law clerks, those relationships last a lifetime. They form this kind of network of support, this community, um, which has just made a dramatic positive impact in my life and in the lives of other clerks that I know. And in addition, when you graduate from law school, you don't know everything and you don't even know what you don't know. So working for a judge is an opportunity to get a behind-the-bench perspective Mm -hmm. on how judges will be looking at your work. How will a judge read a brief? How will a judge assess an oral argument? And so it's really an opportunity for you to cultivate new skills that you didn't learn in law school, but also to hone existing skills and to really get that unique behind-the-bench perspective. Right. And, th- and those skills, not only did you not learn them in law school, but I suspect you won't learn them in practice mm-hmm. because you're literally on the other side of the bench in practice. And- I agree. I practiced before I clerked. Oh, you did? And- you pra- so you practiced before you clerked? Yeah. So I practiced and then I did a teaching position uh, all before I clerked. And I can attest to the fact that you do not learn all of those skills. I never had to write a judicial opinion. I never had to take briefs from two sides and work on kind of synthesizing them into a bench memo for a judge. I mean, those kinds of things, preparing a judge for oral argument and 
looking at both sides of an issue, especially in a closed case, those are not things that you typically do in the practice because in the practice, you're advocating for your client. Mm -hmm. And it's just a very different skill set. So keeping um, with just kind of the value of judicial clerking first, I guess two questions. One is how does it enhance your actual practice? And the other is, does it bring value to an employer? The answer to both is absolutely yes. It will enhance your practice and bring value to an employer. The way that it enhances the practice is through that perspective. Once you have uh, litigated before the bench, once you have worked with brilliant judges, brilliant law clerks behind the bench, you've learned a whole new uh, sort of, you've gained insight into what is effective advocacy, Mm -hmm. what works and what doesn't when you're crafting a brief. what is going to make for the most compelling oral argument. When a judge asks a specific type of question, what answer will be most beneficial to the judge? When you're crafting a record Mm -hmm. with opposing counsel, how can you do that in a way that will be most helpful to the judge, who is your your audience? Those are- And I just, I do want to point that out because that's the thing I think that, you don't get in, you can, it can be taught in law school, but it can't be experienced in law school because you, whether you're a litigator or, or not, ultimately a lot of the things you're doing, even if you're a transactional lawyer, if there are errors in your transactional law, you know, practice, it'll go before a judge. So no matter what you do, the end game, that's our judicial system could potentially either is if it's litigation or may, if it's not be in front of a judge. So I guess what I'm hearing, which makes total sense, is you can't ever anticipate what a judge does unless you experience what a judge does. Yeah, I think there are ways that people who haven't clerked can guess at things. So, for example, one common thing is if you're writing a brief uh, before a court and you know the judge, in some appellate courts, of course, you're not going to know your panel until the morning of or a few days before. The, The different appellate courts handle that differently. But imagine you're writing a persuasive brief in front of a trial court judge. You may research that judge's past opinions to sort of guess at or anticipate the kinds of questions the judge might ask or how the judge might rule. But there's really nothing uh, that equates to actually working in the trenches, working in chambers for one year or two years, day in and day out, and kind of being on the front lines and seeing, you know, how you respond as, as a law clerk when you get a brief and you realize that the brief devoted, let's say, five pages to a pretty frivolous issue. Mm-hmm. Probably given, and how do you react to that? And then when you're out in the practice, you're going to remember and it's going to affect how you craft your brief and how you handle your issues. And again, I think, you know, all of your practice would only be strengthened and changed from that experience. Right. And these experiences generally last a year with a judge, right? So you generally say. Judge to judge. They all have different terms. A year is the most common, mm-hmm. but some of them will have two-year terms. That really does vary from judge to judge. All right. So in your first chapter, I know you talk about the, the checklist of the pros and cons. So mm-hmm. I, you, you've nicely laid out some pros. I'm wondering what are some cons about, like, why wouldn't you do a judicial clerkship? Well, you know, I think whether or not you want to clerk, it is a personal choice, just as with every other position that you take on. 
Um, <clears throat> for example, in that chapter, I talk about the differences between trial clerkships and appellate clerkships. And for some folks, if you really do want to get um, an understanding or a lot of attorney contact, if you want to learn how to work in a high pressure, fast paced, unpredictable environment where you're juggling multiple things and you never know what's going to come that day. Um, and again, you do want to get uh, a lot of experience observing trials and things of that nature. An appellate clerkship may not be the best fit for you because an appellate clerkship, you're going to be spending long days where you're kind of writing on your own or drafting maybe a bench memo or something else and you're going to be doing that throughout the month and then you know once a month you'll be having these court weeks where you hear uh where your judge will be hearing oral argument and so that's a very different thing so part of the purpose of that is really to help folks figure out is clerking a good fit for their long-term goals also for their personalities um and then which type of clerkship would it be mm -hmm. a trial court clerkship or an appellate clerkship? For state or federal, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, if you want to gain experience in state court law and become kind of an expert on state court matters, working at a state court is going to be probably more beneficial for you than federal, um, you know, which may experience most federal questions, for example. Okay. Um, let's get to the meat of your, your book, um, The All-Inclusive Guide to Judicial Clerking, which is published by West Publishing. It seems to me that what you do is you really walk through for students how to apply for a judicial clerkship. And I know that our career services in every school works really well too, but this is kind of a hands-on checklist, if you will, step-by-step step of what you need to do. So can you talk a little bit about the application process, why it's so daunting, and why we need a book to walk us through this, which we do? Yeah. So um, one of the reasons that I wrote the guide is that I felt when I was going through the process years ago, and I went through it um, two different times, that I didn't have, I wish I'd had something mm -hmm. that laid out step-by-step step, instead of telling me, well, you have to provide a recommendation letter, or you have to provide a writing sample. I wish I'd had something that had said, okay, this is how you choose your writing sample. This is how you edit it. This is how you maximize and strengthen your application. And so that's one of the things I try to do in the book. I don't just tell folks what they need to apply. I kind of give them samples. I talk about how to produce the strongest um, writing sample, et cetera, and so on, or recommendation letter. So the application process differs whether it's federal or state. Mm -hmm. Federal system uses Oscar, which is a really terrific um, resource. It streamlines the federal applications. Folks can have up to a hundred applications out at any given time on Oscar. It's like the and common app for college. <laughs> many judges are using it. Um, folks can simply upload their cover letter, their resume, uh, and it will, you know, through Oscar. Which there's a terrific Oscar website site that can talk you through the tech, you know, the technical things of Oscar that will be sent to all those chambers. But one of the reasons that it's also complicated is that other judges mm -hmm. don't use Oscar. There are some federal well, judges. I, that's what I was going to say. Some judges use it and some judges do not. Exactly. So some judges use it and some do not. So mm -hmm. you have to know whether your judges want only paper applications. And how do you um, find out? You can contact chambers, you can look at court websites, there are a lot of different ways to find out that information. Um, in addition, the state courts generally do not have 
any kind of Oscar analog. There are some exceptions. I believe one exception is New Jersey, which I believe does have a streamlined sort of database system. But in most states, um, it's going to be paper applications or sort of individually going to the court website and maybe uh, that particular judge or that court will have their own clerkship website where you can submit applications. So it's wow. kind of piecemeal. And that, that looks- can be a little bit daunting. Um, and then the third thing that makes it daunting is just that it's highly competitive. So everyone's applying for these positions. And so you really want your application materials to help you stand out. So, all right. I, and I do, I want you to speak for uh, a little bit about what makes for a special writing sample and what makes for a special um, letter of recommendation. But before that, you bring up a point about the competitiveness. And so what do you say to students who are at third tier, fourth tier law schools who want to be judges because we actually I, I, pace is, is ranked in the third tier and, and we have actually been very successful um, in part because of work by your colleague who, you know, Elise Diamond. But what do you say to students to not be daunted if they're not from, you know, one of the elite schools? Yeah, I think there are opportunities um, for students at every different tier of law school. Um, many, many judges will look at applications holistically they're not simply cutting people out because they're not at a top 10 law school. They're going to look at the application and all of its factors. And, you know, of course, grades at your law school and rank are very important considerations. So if you are at any rank law school, you want to do your best uh, academically. But I also think it's important to consider casting a wide net, being flexible, uh, and thinking about applying to, for example, magistrate judges specialty courts, administrative law judges. Um, in North Carolina, for example, we have North Carolina Business Court. It's a fantastic opportunity with a sophisticated uh, body of law focused on one subject matter. Um, and a lot of students don't even know about it. I think a lot of students will apply to just the federal district court clerkships and the federal appellate court clerkships that are on Oscar. Mm-hmm. Because it's easy, it's simple, Etc. So I think that for those students who think, well, perhaps my law school ranking is lower, perhaps my class ranking is lower, there are definitely ways that you can be um, strategic and smart in your applications, apply broadly, uh, apply early. Um, other tips that I give students include things like just making sure that your application is impeccable, making sure no that you- typos, like no, no typos. That is the number one thing that I hear from many judges, both in my uh, externship program that I run, but also in just doing research for the book. It has to be impeccable. Make sure you have really strong letters of recommendation. And I'm going to interrupt you there. What makes for a strong letter of recommendation? A strong letter of recommendation is one that comes from someone who knows you very well inside and outside class. A lot of students are tempted to go to the class where they got the highest grade and say, will you write me a letter of recommendation? But if that's a large class where you were assessed via a single exam at the end of the semester, that letter is not gonna be as robust as someone who knows you in multiple ways. I'll give you an example. Uh, If somebody has only had you in a large class where you didn't exam, they're gonna be able to say, I had so-and-so in my classes you know, 60 students, uh, the person achieved an A on the final exam. For this reason, I have no reason to think they won't be a great law clerk. Right. You need a lot of those letters. Yeah. 
not going to set you apart. But if you have someone who's had you, let's say in a clinic, and also was a faculty advisor of an organization that you were a leader of, that person's going to be able to talk about you in different ways, your leadership capacity, how you work with others, but also your writing, mm-hmm. your skills. So I always tell students, you know, think about somebody maybe that you had in class or multiple classes, but that you also served as a research assistant for. Right. You can talk about you in a supervisory role. How are you as a, a research assistant? How are you also in class? Someone that you've been a teaching assistant for, but also had in class. Your clinic director, um, you know, people that really know you well in multiple ways and have a good relationship with you and a long relationship, not someone that's had you in one class two years ago, someone that's known you since maybe your 1L year and that you sustain that relationship that can really speak about your character, who you are as a person, how you'll be in chambers, but also your writing, your research, your analytical skills. Um, your ability to take criticism. These are things that are going to be very important uh, in order for you to be a successful member of any judicial chambers. So I had heard when writing letters of recommendation for clinic, uh, for um, judicial clerkships, that we should always include an anecdote, something special about the student or some experience rather than kind of the blanket, this student has great writing skills. Is that an accurate statement? Um, I don't know if it has to necessarily, but I do think that's a great idea. It's a way of showcasing how well you know the student, that you do have that personal relationship, you know that student, as I said, inside and outside the, the classroom. So when folks at Wake Forest ask me about writing letters of recommendation, I simply say, you want to speak about their academic qualifications. You want to think about what the judge is going to care about and the duties of a law clerk. Those duties include drafting, editing, docket management, um, having a back and forth with the judge and other law clerks, the ability to take criticism, being dependable, being efficient. So you want to talk about all those things, but I always say, but then you've got to also think about that chamber's family. And you want someone who's going to be a good personality fit for that small, intimate chambers environment. So do talk about those personal qualities and characteristics. And that's where an anecdote, uh, I think, can be particularly helpful at giving insight into that, that student or that alumna and why that person might be a great fit for chambers. That's great advice, actually. And, and, and I just want to speak to the students for a moment, because number one, it's perfectly okay for students to tell professors nicely, these are the kind of things that might be helpful, and to remind professors of some special things. You know, there's a great, um, in the movie The Paper Chase, you know the movie The Paper Chase? It's, it's an old movie. I don't know if anyone watches it, but I'll never forget in the movie The Paper Chase, the student and, and, and Professor Kingsfield, the contracts professor, have this dynamic in-class relationship. And then in the last scene, they get in the elevator together. And Professor Kingsfield, because he had so many people, you know, he had like hundreds of people, so it's a little different, didn't really remember. And, and so it's always okay to prompt a professor and remind a professor about you. But the other thing that you said, which I think is a really good takeaway for students, is it's incumbent upon the student to build the relationship with the professor. Professors sometimes reach out, but professors love when students reach out to them. And it's perfectly okay to say to a professor, do you have some research I can work on? Um, Or even go to a professor outside of the class during office hours and not only speak about the class, 
but build a relationship. And I think it really behooves all students to pick one professor that they can build a relationship with. Because to your point, if you don't and the student got an A in the class, all the professor can say about the student is that they got an A in the class. And you know what? The transcripts already say that they got the A in the class. So, um, and that's true whether you're doing judicial clerking or whether you're just applying for a job, I think. But you raised that good point. Yeah, it's, it's very important. It behooves the student from day one to start building relationships and to maintain them. I think a lot of times students will have a good relationship with one L professor and they won't take them for a year or two. And then in their third year after they graduate, they'll reach out. And, and that problem that they face is kind of what you mentioned. But it's really important for mentorship even. To, to pick a few professors that you feel like you really resonate with and not for any ulterior motives that one day I'm going to ask for a recommendation, but just for mentorship, for support, for community, maintaining that relationship throughout law school. And, you know, some students will come to me and they'll say, I'd really like this professor to write a recommendation for me, but I've only had the professor in exam classes. And I'm afraid the professor won't be able to talk about my research. And my suggestion to them is kind of what you said, which is, well, go to the professor, see if you could do a research project, see if you could do something um, so that the professor would be able to talk not just about your performance in those classes, but also this research project that you did. Um, and that's another way that they can, again, uh, help the professor to really draft a glowing, unique recommendation letter that will help that applicant stand out yeah. amongst the Pool yeah. of letters that the judge receives. And when do students apply for judicial clerkships? Yeah, so the timing again, it varies. Uh, it varies for state court versus federal court. And at this point, there's a little quirk that's been introduced into things because some of the courts have adopted a federal law clerk hiring pilot program. So some of the federal courts are participating in this pilot program, and it has very clearly delineated uh, timeframes when judges are accepting applications, when they're reviewing applications. Um, and so at this point, what I would tell students is um, go to the OSCAR website, review. There's a whole page dedicated to this pilot program. Get a sense of those uh, timeframes, which courts are participating, which aren't, uh, and kind of go from there working with your OCPD. Again, state courts tend to hire a little bit later. Some of your specialty courts may hire a little bit later. Um, so it really does vary, which is another reason that the process um, can be sometimes a little uh, complicated to navigate. And it's always good to have help, whether it's from a book, whether it's from your wonderful clerkship committee or faculty advisor or your amazing Office of Career and Professional Development. Um, yeah. You know, get involved. A good thing I always tell folks here is from, from 1L year. You need to let people at your school know if you're interested in clerking, let your faculty advisor know. Mm -hmm. um, get in touch with your clerkship resources at your school. Some schools have a director of clerkships. Some schools have a person who's dedicated to it in the Office of Career and Professional Development. We have, for example, a clerkship committee of folks who work. Let those people know at your school so that you can get advice and guidance all three years. And even after you graduate, alumni can come back. Um, but put it on their radar so that they have that in mind when they're giving you advice on course selection or summer jobs or things like that. And, and that's the, the last question I want to ask you is course selection. Are there any particular courses you would recommend students take that will show on their transcript 
or the, I shouldn't say show, that will speak to um, a hiring judge on their transcript? Definitely, I would encourage students to, if possible, complete a judicial externship. That's always a great way to signal a longstanding interest in clerking. It's also a great way to get some experience in chambers. I know PACE has some excellent programs. They're federal honors program, they're state court. Yeah, we do, program, we do, yeah. Family court program, but other schools also have great programs. So I would say do a judicial externship if you can. Um, in some schools, those externships are accompanied by classes, um, which also cover things like chambers confidentiality, judicial ethics, uh, judicial drafting. Here at Wake, we have a judicial clerking course in the summer. We also have a judicial drafting lawyer three course that's taught oh. during the year. So students have two different opportunities. And I always tell students, do that, because that's not only going to help you better prepare yourself to clerk, so that when you get into a clerkship position, you have experience in opinion drafting or bench memo drafting, things of that nature. But it's also going to help you get the clerkship because the judges are going to look and say, wow, this person is going to come ready to really hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. um, take a writing intensive course every semester of law school. Write as much as you can. Get as much feedback as you can. Hone your editing skills, your analytical skills. Um, advanced legal research is incredibly important. Nobody finishes their 1L year knowing all they need to know about research. So continuing your education, research is a very important part of clerking. Um, and so I would encourage folks to take those courses. If you know where you want to clerk, if you're a person who says, I really want to clerk on the federal circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals for Federal Circuit, and and that court has specific subject matter jurisdiction. Things like intellectual property, international trade comprise a large part of the docket. If you know you want to go to a court like that or you want to go to a family court or another specialty court, try to take courses that are relevant to that court's jurisdiction to signal that longstanding interest and preparedness for the position. Um, in addition to other classes, classes like federal courts, uh, advanced civil procedure, criminal procedure are going to be very useful if you work or clerk at any court of general jurisdiction that handles criminal and civil cases. So, um, and then I can't say enough about the value of experiential courses. Uh, court clinics and things of that nature um, can be incredibly helpful, particularly if you don't have a judicial externship opportunity available, do a clinic because mm -hmm. you can gain a lot of valuable experience. Um, so I think all of those things can signal to judges that you are prepared to add value to chambers, that you enjoy writing, uh, and that you've been developing the skills you're going to need to perform well in chambers. Terrific. Well, thank you. So um, is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't get to? Um, I think the only thing I would add is it's incredibly beneficial. <laughs> I would encourage <laughs> anyone to consider it. And um, I'm always happy uh, to, you know, talk to folks from any law school. My email is purdue at wfu.edu. Uh, and I'm always happy to chat with anybody if you have you know, specific questions. Um, but my clerkship really just changed my life um, for the better. My judge for whom I clerked, my second clerkship, wrote the foreword to the book on that wonderful Aww. relationship between 
law clerks and judges. And it was an honor to be able to work with him again on another project. Um, and I just have the utmost respect for both of my judges. I dedicated the book to my parents and to my judges. Oh my goodness. That's nice. I, I see with my colleagues who've cooked for judges, what an incredible bond that occurs between them. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. This has really been valuable. And um, I do encourage students, number one, to reach out to their career or the career services office and also to reach out to Professor Perdue. One thing about my guests, which is wonderful, is they're willing to help anyone who contacts them. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. So that's my discussion with Professor Perdue. Her book, The All-Inclusive Guide to Judicial Clerkships, published by West Academic Press, is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and law school bookstores. Once again, I want to remind you that if you have topics about which you would like us to discuss or professors with whom you'd like us to speak, please reach out to us at lawdefact.gmail.com or you can tweet us at lawdefact. Hope you enjoyed this. Thanks as always to www.bensound.com for the music and enjoy your day.